0: Welcome to another episode of the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to the referendum on Scotland's future is underway, and in these podcasts, we're examining the choices for the Scottish public, looking at what we do differently to Westminster already with the limited powers we do have, and what we could and would do differently with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved, and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland. Because. As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host Drew Hendry MP. In this episode I'm in conversation with Mike Russell, former Scottish Government Cabinet Secretary for the Constitution, Europe and External Affairs, President of the SNP, a Professor of Culture and Governance and author of numerous books. Mike represented Argyll and Butte until May 2021 as an MSP and has been appointed as the Director of the SNP's Independence Unit. Along the way he's also a keen and gifted amateur photographer. Mike, thank you very much for joining me today on this podcast. Hi, how you doing? Good, thank you. Uh, Mike, obviously there's uh, some really important questions about independence that we have to go through. Can, can you give me your thoughts on how the independence argument and the framing of the debate has changed since 2014?
1: Yes, I mean everything's changed since 2014. Uh, you know, we've, uh, we've had Brexit, which was an enormous change because uh, devolution and the building from devolution, completing the powers of the parliament, was an action we all thought we would undertake within the context of the EU. Uh, The damage to Scotland has been very great from Brexit and is getting worse. But then the pandemic has trumped that in the sense that I can use the word trump non-pejoratively in these circumstances, and has created uh, essentially an entirely new world for us, which we have to build something new out of the... the, the, essentially, the worst public health emergency, the most life-threatening public health emergency we've had in a century. So it is tabula rasa. We start again. We start with a whole set of, of, of new challenges, and we have to explain independence and discuss independence within that context. But I actually think that improves our prospects because I think the link between becoming independent, having the full powers we need in Scotland, and the recovery that we need to undertake and the green recovery that we need to undertake are very, very clear. And that's a, a big job to make sure that people understand us.
0: And of course, one of the big changes there is Brexit. It's loomed large. And it's true that Brexit was the turning point for a good many voters. What was it like uh, trying to make Scotland's voice heard to the UK government during that time? And where does it leave us now?
1: Well, it was, it was pretty difficult and remains pretty difficult. I, I have seen people argue that we should, we should talk about independence with the context of the EU and without with the context of, of Brexit. I simply don't think that's possible. Now, you know, you, you could accuse me of being prejudicially pro-European, fanatically pro-European, according to, to one English-based journalist, I have to say, recently. Um, but I, I think the, the issue of how we work with other people has always been central to the issue of independence. And when it was framed in the in the 1980s and 1990s as independence within Europe. That was framing it in the context of, of doing something positive and knowing the context in which we would operate as an independent country. Now, it seems to me that that positive nature of engagement is something we need to talk about uh, regarding independence, because you know England, particularly, has walked away from that. England has become isolationist. And to me, independence is not about isolationism. It's about joining in. Trying to represent Scotland's interests over those five years was hard, I mean, I have to say. Because we started off, I think, with a naive assumption, but it wasn't an assumption, that we would be listened to, and if not respected, that there would be a dialogue. I think I can probably say now that I think that a dialogue stopped happening almost before it started, and that Theresa May uh, deliberately moved to the right and into the hands of, of the extreme Brexiteers, because that's where the Tory party was going. And Johnson was the apotheosis of this, that essentially that was a fulfillment of of their dream of that hardline Brexit, which was not the Brexit that was discussed in 2016, and the prospect for compromise ebbed away. So eventually it was about keeping the, the, the noise up, keeping the point of view up. It may have been bouncing off, you know, Michael Gold and, and, and others there, but it needs to be heard in Scotland, and it still needs to be heard in Scotland because we need to, we never should accept Brexit. We should never accept that that is where we will be for the foreseeable future, and I think that's a vital part, certainly, of my view of independence.
0: Clearly, there are extremely time-sensitive issues around the effects on Scotland about Brexit. You know, the, the, we see the results of that from trade and other things happening just now. So, given that there's an urgency about dealing with this, why aren't we having a referendum now? Why why aren't we waiting for? Why are we waiting for COVID to subside?
1: Well, there is a time sensitivity in the sense things are not going to get better. Uh, And the work we have to do to roll back from that will get conventionally bigger. So we we have to be aware of that. Equally, first of all, there is not a majority for independence at the moment. I think that's clear. Any referendum we held, we might win, we might lose. Uh, And to be blunt, I want to be pretty certain of winning um, when when we go in for for that final vote. Because if we don't win, two referendums which we've lost will be a terrible legacy for those who come after us. Um, So that's one issue. But also, I'm in no doubt listening to people during the last electoral campaign, particularly during the Hollywood campaign, that two things have happened. One is that people haven't yet completely understood the link between recovery and referendum, and there's still work to be done on that. But also people are shell-shocked by the pandemic, and, and they they want to be assured that any government and and, you know that is one of the dilemmas you know if you if you're going to independence through devolution which is the only route that exists you know that 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 became the route in 1997 when people voted for devolution if you're going that through that way in government people want to be assured that the government is focused on defeating the pandemic and that is there's a real absolute so for all for those reasons for the reasons of winning And for the reasons of having a normal campaign in which we can explain face-to-face what we need to do then i think the right thing to do is to wait for the pandemic to subside but we should and I've, i've you know i've talked about this and written about this we should be putting in place the building of knowledge and the building of information and i hope that's something i can contribute as i i begin to 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 play a role as party president in helping to steer the independence campaign and
0: the independence unit. Yeah, it's pointless to launch a campaign at a time when you haven't got the information across to all the people to make that choice that they need to make. Um, you know, it's by being informed and making sure that uh, people have got that opportunity that uh, you've got the chance to to win. So that seems entirely sensible to me. The, coming back to uh, Westminster, do you sense that aside from Brexit, people? from all walks of life are becoming increasingly disillusioned with the Westminster, as we've seen in, even in recent weeks, but it's been going on for an awful long time, that the Westminster's mired in scandal after scandal after scandal.
1: I think the depressing thing is that there are a substantial number of people who expect that in politics. I think the, the, the breaking of the link between actions and consequences in politics is very, very serious and very dangerous. Um, and and there is a sort of tolerance of dreadful, appalling, corrupt behavior, because, well, that's what happens. And you see that happen in some places elsewhere in the world. You see a uh, tolerance of, of corruption and and, and and malpractice, because that's what politicians do. And we, we should hold our politicians to high standards, and we should expect uh, you know, a, a, a standard of behavior which, you know, it, people cannot always keep to, and, and, and we should not be censorious about... You know, the fact that there are people, and there are often events which would control people, but the sheer scale of that at Westminster is now pretty horrific. Now, I think in Scotland, there's still a demand for a different type of politics, but it's being eroded by the actions of the Tories, and by the Tories in Scotland as well as the Tories in England. And the appalling nature of the opposition, the Labour opposition particularly in, in, at Westminster, does not help. So I think we have to articulate a case for a better politics, as well as articulate the case for independence, and link the two of them together. But it does depress me sometimes, and I think that, you know, Johnson is, has been prime minister for two years, you know, is is an arch liar, that the, you know, it, it is quite clear that the standards within government are appalling, and that corruption is right. And and yet, you know, Labour is unable to lay a glove on indeed
0: and, and it is the pressing being there and watching this unfold and seeing that uh, they're taking it almost as a new normal you know the fact that there's scandal after scandal that there's uh, you know jobs for the boys there's there's cronyism going on there's uh, you know COVID contracts being given out to friends and donors peerages all that kind of thing uh, going on at the time and it, 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 it certainly to, to people that I speak to back in the constituency it, it does seem to make a, a, a big difference to them when they're looking at the, the difference between the Scottish Parliament and the way it's operating in the Westminster Parliament do you think that's a strength um, people seeing the way the Scottish Parliament operates do you think that's a strength that, uh, that counts in this argument?
1: Well, I think we have to, you know, even if it was, even if it was not a strength but neutral, I think we would want to continue to have the standards that we should have, and we should decry those who don't have them. I mean, they, you know, one of the most unpleasant periods in my long political experience, I have to say, was the last few months that me that I served there as a member of the government and saw the actions of the Tories, particularly, and the way in which they wanted to tear people down. They two motions of no confidence in John. Uh, the attempt to get emotional confidence in Nicola. It was pretty revolting, uh, and it was revolting because it had nothing to do. It was mouthing about standards. You know, it was sheer naked politics, and that brings the place into disrepute. And I have to say, when I you know, when I see Douglas Ross asking questions at FMQs, that or PMQs, FMQs, that brings that brings the place into disrepute mm-hmm. too, because it is it is facts free and often uh, they, what he says are perversion of facts. So I think we need to work very hard to keep those standards up. But you know, look at look at the contrast between the way in which we were treated, perhaps rightly, so, over uh, the issue of Catherine Calderwood and what has happened to Matt Hancock. Yeah. You know, Catherine Calderwood you know, was was contributing a vital service. I, I have great respect for Catherine. She did something that was wrong and stupid, and she recognised that. And it would have been wonderful to continue to have her service, but it was not possible. You know. Uh, Hancock was going to stay, undoubtedly was going oh, yeah. to stay, um, until, in fact, he was forced out, not by the Prime Minister, but he's, in fact, my fellow Tory MPs, who just thought that was enough. Mm-hmm. I, I think we have to reflect upon that, just as we reflect upon the double standards on constitutional matters, you know. It's it's double standards that we, we want to make sure we stand against, and we should not indulge it. In. Well, let, let's
0: talk about those Westminster politicians a little bit. Uh, further, why would you say that Westminster politicians are so desperate uh, for Scotland to stay in the union? They're constantly referring to things like the Barnett formula and inferring that Scotland subsidised. Why aren't they actually actively begging us to leave?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know they they often give the game away on this. There is there is the the, the, the humiliation of the you know, losing Scotland, which they have always wanted to control and felt they did control. There is the damage to prestige that that would cause internationally, and, and their prestige is very badly damaged after Brexit anyway. Probable loss of the seat in the Security Council. There is, in their view, nowhere to put the nuclear submarines. I mean, that is absolutely clear. That sounds, you know, prosaic reason, but that's actually clear. It is really problematic to find another nuclear base um, anywhere, you know, in England or, or possibly even in, in Wales. Um, and, you know, I, I continue to believe that, far from there being a subsidy, we are, in actual fact, more than paying our way. Uh, you know, the moment you say that, you know, the union has fallen your head, and, you know, there was a huge fuss about it last year when I said it. But I, I just think, you know, you, you, you want to go and read some of the material on India, you know, and, 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 and on colonialism, but I'm not saying we're a colony. And then you realize that it is very much tied up with is um, financial benefit that England gets from the union you know, and the UK government gets from the union. So all of those things together, and it's also the political status quo. I remember talking to a very senior UK minister at Scott quite a long time ago, and we were talking about you know it, it, the very point that if this was so expensive and this was ruinous, why would they go on? And he said, it said sentiment. You know, it's sentiment. They 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 believe that this is their right. They believe that that is what this is." what they have, and they cannot, in a sentimental or emotional way, distance themselves from So But we should remember that, because it will be very difficult for some people, when independence happens, as I believe it will, they will feel that pull. Mm-hmm. They will feel that very, very strongly. And we need to understand that, and we need to be able to help them get through what will be a difficulty. This has to be a process in which we recognize the human difficulties for some people, not for. You know, not for the English Tory government, not for not for the Tory party per se, but there will be individuals who have lived with this for a long time and who find it.
0: And, and of course, they, there are other nations that have previously been a burden that couldn't have survived without uh, the UK, like Malta all and the, Singapore. All, all of All of these all other ones, yeah. It, yeah.
1: yeah. Starting with the American colonies and, and working <laughs> the world. They just couldn't do that. Nobody can survive. The, without the broad shoulders of the UK, except, <laughs> yeah. we then see that what what happens, those broad shoulders blot out the sun, they, they restrict our growth, they impoverish us, because we've seen that with some of the comparisons that are you know, now on the record. You know, that in actual fact, in almost every comparison, Scotland does worse as part of the UK than it would do as an independent country, if you compare to small independent countries in the rest of the EU, for example, mm-hmm. with far fewer resources. So, you know, these broad shoulders, you know, are not us, They are weighing a stack.
0: Mm-hmm. Indeed. It, just turning to, the, uh, to, to independence again here. There are, there are many, as, as we both know, but in simple terms, what do you believe are the most compelling arguments for independence?
1: Normality is the most compelling argument, that we do not live in a real society. We don't live in a real world. We are constantly having to be, we are second guessed. And we're constantly constrained by what we can do. It is simply the normal thing to do, to have the resources, the rich resources, both in terms of manpower, people power, education, educated. we're the best educated country in Europe, according to the OECD. Um, all our resources apply to the issues we have to make our decisions untrammeled by other people and take mm. responsibility for those decisions. Mm. It is, for me, simply normality. Uh, we are no better than anybody else. There's certainly no worse than those people, and it is achieving that normality. What we have at the present moment is is an abnormality. It is it is being spoken for and it is not allowing us to fulfil our potential.
0: Yeah. And do you think Scotland can
1: actually afford to stay in the UK? I, I think that's a really moot point. I mean I remember a long time ago, I think it was Jim Silver's argument that what we should be saying is is just asking the UK, telling the UK they had to justify the union not us justifying independence. And we've never taken that argument far enough because there's a huge weight of argument against it, particularly from the media. What we need to do is, I think, ask ourselves those questions and to get some of the serious answers. And there is some of that work going on to say, what is the cost of the union to us? You know. And, and if you look at the comparisons, again, if you look at you know, uh, GDP per head, for example, one of the, you know, the lowest in, 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 in Europe, astonishing. Uh, if you look at pensions, you know, lowest in Europe, uh, and you actually say to yourself, there's something wrong here. How do we get into a more normal state um, and, and, and how do we take advantage of the many uh, resources and advantages we have, but which we're not using? Mm-hmm. And of course, those resources
0: in terms of comparisons with neighboring uh, countries and countries within uh, Europe uh, are, are absolutely fantastic, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, the more that these figures are produced, and, you know, we need to make sure that those figures get out and people have them. One of the things I want to do in, in fairly short order is start to get material flowing out to people, and then they can choose what to do with it. Nobody should be sitting around waiting to be told, you know, that they need to talk about independence, but we need to give them, give people more information to allow them to do so. But those arguments are pretty convincing. But they're, they're not the whole thing. I was doing a, a, an event some weeks ago for a year school, and, and I was very very influenced by a lady on, on the call who, who said that you know interesting as all this was you know she had voted no in 2014 was voting yes now because she wanted to live in a better society a more generous uh, you know a more equal a more open society and it was the intangibles of the of, of, of how that was created and the attitudes of people that influenced her not every cross p and dotted line not every figure that was added up on the balance sheet it was that aspiration's what. You know, um, it's John Adams line on making government anew, you know, it it is about making something different. Mm -hmm. That's a huge advantage of independence.
0: So um, as we go into the Yes campaign, um, what kind of unity can we expect in that campaign, given that some Yes supporters seem to be more focused on attacking the SNP, which is obviously going to be the party that's going to drive this, and not the union?
1: Yes, uh, 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 that's a singularly unfortunate thing that has arisen, and it's been deeply unpleasant for most of us. I mean, you will feel it as as I feel, those of us who have been in the party a long time really regret seeing this. Uh, you know, and there are people who are behaving as if, you know, uh, bringing down the SNP, and particularly the leadership of the SNP, is the way to independence, I and mean, this is, you know, axiomatically ridiculous and mm. just nonsense, and they punch it, but that's what they believe. Um, I don't believe that we will be able to, no, should we wish, to construct a monolithic yes campaign. That didn't happen in 2014. It shouldn't happen now. But we should try and agree on a positive, uh, an outward-looking campaign which we all played a role. We're not all going to say the same thing. And What I'm trying to do in, in, in the work that I'm doing now is to have that non-threatening conversation with other groups to say, you know. How will we exchange information? What resources are you bringing to the table in terms of the work you're doing? How can we help disseminate that? How can we give you things to disseminate? But, you know, I just hope that some of the sheer vitriol that I've seen from some people goes, just people take a jump to themselves and realize this is not the way to do it. You know, it, it has been bound up in personality politics, it has been bound up in accusations of, 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 of um, conspiracies, of dishonesty, uh, that has to stop. Hmm. You know, I'm, hmm. I'm, a, I'm, as a party president, I'm a member of the of the NDC, uh, and I see at the NEC now, now that it is shorn of some people who did not, didn't seem to want it. Um, I, I see good, honest party members who are keen to see the party do well, and I think can, can build together mm-hmm. yeah. with the membership something that's really important. But we have to try to have unity, and therefore I try not to, Get involved in the singing matches, so and it, it it does depress me. It, it's also a
0: hard, it's also easy to overestimate the the people that involved in this because one of the things I've found, having been involved in the election campaign, that directly. Uh, last time out just a few months ago uh, was that you know you would see all this stuff unfolding on twitter and on facebook yeah. and so forth and you know you would think okay what's what's going to be the reaction of actual voters actual snp members yeah. when you speak to them and, and they're asking the the, the same questions they go, where is this coming from you know why is it happening <laughs> now you know when you're actually speaking to to the the vast majority yeah. of of folk it, it, is there a is there a danger that, that this is all being amplified
1: Yes, uh, social media is very damaging in that regard. I mean, I, I, one of the one of the key protagonists of, of that sort of negative approach uh, was tweeting one morning just before the election. that Either Twitter was not representative, or the opinion polls were utterly wrong. Well, we now know which it was. It was <laughs> because Twitter was utterly unrepresentative, and there is that problem. But we shouldn't ignore it. But yeah, I mean, in reality, people want to get on with things. I, I regret, you know, one or two people in, in our dialogue. Who have joined Oliver, and I regret that because I, I like them, they're friends, mm-hmm. I think they will be lost, the party. There are other people, well, that's their decision, they, they can go and do what they want to do. I hope we can move into a better place, but yeah, I mean, the vast majority of people are not concerned by this, nor should they be.
0: Okay, so look, looking ahead to the campaign being in full swing, uh, do you anticipate the unionists being able to come up with any? any new, any dynamic, positive arguments for the Union? Or do you think what they'll be doing is rehashing uh, Project Fear again?
1: Yes, I, I mean, I think, it, I think they will seek to undermine the national movement every really way they can. And they are, you know, they are trolling us, they are gaslighting us. I mean, Gove's, you know, constant refusals is designed to set us against each other uh, and to encourage people to say, oh, this is awful, we must now go and, and to misstep us and to make us misstep. This is happening all the time. We need to be on our guard against that and not be provoked into actions that are wrong and doing things at the wrong time. You know, they will be very sleek in what they do. That's how they are. And that work has already started. There is an advantage in us in being much, much more straightforward and and very straightforward with with our uh, uh, Scottish voters with each other. And I think, you know, I I think that has its effect. Uh, I think if you are more honest and straightforward, it comes across. Remember, classically, in campaigning two negative campaigns, it is the most negative that will win, but if a negative campaign is set against a positive campaign, it is usually the positive campaign. So we should remember that. Is there a new killer argument against independence? No, I don't <laughs> think so. Um, I, I think that they will center on <coughs> what we can afford, whether we are going to have currency or cowrie shells. We're now apparently uniquely in the world, we'd be the only people who didn't have a currency. There are issues such as the borders that they will exploit. But you know, we need to hold up to the people of Scotland. Mm. that vision of a better society. It doesn't have to be as it is now, and we have to persuade people of that on the positive. And I think we can do that. And, and what do you think
0: about their the you know, for example, you mentioned the Section Thirty argument there just now. Do you, how strong do you think they are in terms of uh, stopping? That, the, of
1: that just can't last forever. I mean, you know, no, 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 nothing lasts forever in politics, and that won't last forever. But equally, you know, we have, we have stated our position on what we are going to do next as a, as a party, as a government, which is very clear, you know, w- the bill will be brought into the parliament at the time of the parliament's choosing. That's not for me. I'm not a member of it. I'm not a member of the government. That will be, that will be for, you know, the first minister and the cabinet and, and working with the Green Party, i sure, to bring in the bill at the time they think is appropriate and to set a um, And that's, that's absolutely fine then once that bill is passed and the arrangements are being put in place a uh, section 30 will have been will have been sought if the uk government however, refuse that and refuse to accept that there should be a referendum then it will undoubtedly end up in court and it will be the uk government that attempts to stop the people of scotland mm-hmm. from saying what they wish to do uh, and that is that would be i think pretty remarkable and very much remarked on uh, else uh, in this country and elsewhere But that's what would happen It would become that dispute now what will happen as a result of that I do not know but you know I hope better sense will prevail and I think you know confronted with a bill that has a majority in the Scottish Parliament two parties have had a personal commitment to that bill uh, and you know and and has been endorsed by the people you know it is the people that matter Mm -hmm. and I hope that that would have its effect but you know we will wait and see but that is the intention and that is what should happen
0: For those who couldn't hear that, because sometimes technology can let us down, what Mike was telling us there was there is a majority in the Scottish Parliament, there's a commitment to the bill, and it's been endorsed by the Scottish people in a democratic election. And what what do you make of the the constant attempts to deny democracy? You're talking about the majority in the Scottish Parliament. There, I've heard the the Tories in Scotland say, you know, you you SNP didn't win a majority. That's therefore there's no right. It's no, no, to, no, to, no, to, no, totally no, ignoring the no, the fact no, that the Parliament no, has a majority. What do you think of that? Those continual arguments trying to no, deny no, democracy. It's
1: just pathetic nonsense. I mean, it's nonsense when it comes from yeah. You know, ridiculous figure, Alastair Jack, you know, who is just like something out of 1950s politics, you know, and he thinks that he can lecture people on this. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Nonsense, and we should have no time for it. And it's nonsense when it comes from unionist, obsessive unionist journalists like Ian Martin. You see it all the time. It's just nonsense. And I mean, we should treat it as nonsense. We, we you know, we are the government of Scotland in a parliament elected to do that. Uh, we are, you know, there is a majority in that parliament, an even bigger majority for a referendum bill. Let's get real. That's real. It's not this artificial flummery that's coming from stuffed shirts like um, like Alistair Jack. Well, finally,
0: uh, Mike, we've talked about, you know, the the need to highlight the positives in the campaign to talk about the uh, what kind of country Scotland could be. For your personal point of view, what? What are you looking forward to in terms of the uh, campaign? What do you think would make it the most successful campaign that you can envisage?
1: Oh, I'm looking forward to winning. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I think no. Scotland has to has to win this. I, you know, I hope if I can bring anything to 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 this uh, this stage of my, my my career and my life, it will be to have a sense of optimism. But it will also to be have a methodical sense of how we go about this step by step. And I'm looking forward to building the arguments so that people are getting hold of the arguments and using them, encouraging the debate and discussion, trying to keep it on a positive keel, and, uh, in time, uh, giving way to the parliamentarians and the government, Then this becomes you know, a government campaign for a referendum, for which the government are recommending a yes um, And I think at that stage we will have you know, a very wide and broad-based campaign. And if I could have one other wish. It would be that we were able, the yes forces were able to do, to work productively on that, to put aside any differences that we have. um, And and I do hope we can
0: achieve them. Mike Russell, thank you very much indeed for joining me in this podcast today. Thank
1: you for doing your podcast. Uh, It's a good innovation. Thank you for inviting me to take part.
0: So, there we have it. We need a new referendum to ensure a legitimate and internationally recognised result. We need to ensure that we've persuaded enough people in order to win it, otherwise it's all for nothing. And we can do this by pointing out how Westminster fails to understand or care about Scotland, and how our different social and political values can create a fairer and better Scotland. Our best chance of winning against a no campaign that will be boosted by division is to bring people together for a unified campaign on the yes side. There is a majority in the Scottish Parliament that has been democratically elected by the people of Scotland with a mandate for an independence referendum and they are charged with delivering despite all attempts to undermine or call into question our democracy. My thanks once again to Mike Russell for joining me in this podcast. Thank you for listening and don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at Scotland'sChoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.